Welcome, everybody, to this week's RevOps podcast. I'm Alistair Wilcock, Chief Strategy Revenue Officer here at Revenue.io. I'm really happy to have with me today Scott Stauffer. Scott, you know, is a established entrepreneur and CEO, currently CEO founder of Scale Matters. But Scott, I just want to brag on you here for a second, if if that's okay. You know, you have taken a company public. You have sold one to a strategic acquirer. You've also had a financial buyer of another. Also importantly, you've, you've had ones that didn't work as well, right? Like that's, a, that's a true sign of an entrepreneur. <laughs> I think your average IRR is 91%. You have done you know, 14 times equity uh, returns on amounts invested. I, this, is, this is pretty big. Um, and you've done it from zero to firms, by, by my understanding, as high as $150 million in revenue overall. So... I'm going to put you in the entrepreneur scale up junkie bucket. That's okay. <laughs> sure and uh, really happy to have you with us here. Uh, thanks for having me, Alistair. I'm looking forward to the uh, discussion here. Now, Howard, unfortunately, couldn't join us today because you know, Howard, like you, is a you know three-time entrepreneur, loves building and scaling these businesses. So, you know, myself included in that category and, of course, analyzed a bunch of them when I was a gardener and looking at them, what makes them work and doesn't work. But what really excited, I think, me when we first chatted wasn't just the track record, but you have a really good perspective on what's working and isn't working in the market conditions we're in, which they're tumultuous right now. Yeah. Like we all know the headlines of the past nine months, the hit on valuations, the down rounds, the hits, the debt financing, the amazing debt. Like there's a lot going on in a lot of companies right now, but still germane to all of those are going to be their go-to-market models. And you know, we have come off a 10-year run, one of the longest in history, of where it was just grow at all costs, right? It was just grow, grow, grow. And we're not. You know, heaven forbid, we're actually now tasked with building businesses that might know how to make some money. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're living that. You're seeing that as well. So tell me from, you know, your CEO, Founder Skill Matters, you're engaging with a lot of these companies as well. What's your take on what needs to change in these go-to-market models? How's a CEO, are you helping other CEOs deal with the circumstances they're living with right now? Sure. Well, it's almost mind-boggling how tangible this shift of mindset has been, uh, it, it, you know, and how visible it is. I mean, we all see the, um, you know, the layoff headlines. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's real. We tend to focus on early and growth stage B2B companies. So think of our smallest customers are in the two to three million dollar annual revenue range our largest customers in the 200 to 300 million dollar annual revenue range most of them vc backed or or private equity backed and yeah we're i mean i would say 90 95 percent of the companies that we're uh, e- either engaged with as customers or as prospects have said there's been a discernible change in mindset uh where they're very focused on efficiency uh we started adding a um kind of qualifying questionnaire we do before we speak to people we we basically say now you know, on a scale of one to 10, where one is growth at all costs, 10 is efficient growth, where would you guys put yourself from a strategic priority perspective? Right. And uh, I think the lo- I think the lowest we've seen in the last couple of months is a seven. Um, and, and virtually everyone's kind of eight, nine, and 10. Um, so it's it's been dramatic, uh, the shift. And of course, you know, how does that translate? You know, it's one thing for 
you know, your venture investors, your board to say, uh, you know, we've got to change this mindset here uh, because we don't have, you know, unlimited funds that, where you could just sort of throw stuff away and not care about it to this point where you've got to be extremely efficient. So, so what do you do differently, right? A- and, you know, our view is the way to become efficient is by getting rid of the inefficiencies. And the good news in the uh, go-to-market motions of the vast majority of these early and growth stage companies is there are so many inefficiencies, right? I mean, there are so many areas of opportunity to basically take friction out or, you know, you hear the term revenue leakage, right? All, all of the things that basically are different words to talk about inefficiency, right? And, and there's so many of them in, in these organizations. And because part of the problem is, I think it was um, John Wanamaker, you know, 100 years ago, famous uh, department store executive, said something like, you know, I know 50% of my advertising spend is completely wasted. I just don't know which 50%. That's right. That same issue is what exists for all these companies. They, they know fundamentally that there's stuff they're doing that isn't driving revenue. Yep. But they don't have great visibility on precisely which is the non-productive spend versus which is the productive spend. So there's this stress, right, about cutting spend because, God forbid, we cut the stuff that actually was working for us. And so, you know, we noticed all these different areas of, of non what we call non-productive spend or friction. And I'll give you a few examples. Uh, a lot of it is around messaging. And these growth stage companies, you know, 15, 20, $50 million businesses, I mean, they've clearly got some level of decent product market fit or they wouldn't have even gotten to that point. That's right. But they don't necessarily have great, great messaging still. And, you know, we've seen um, many companies where on their marketing messaging, so digital ad programs, maybe listings in G2, et cetera, they're actually bringing in non-ICP customers, right. a, a lot of uh, customers who are, who do not fit the ideal customer profile, right? And it's because the messaging is speaking to the wrong people and attracting the wrong people. And so you've therefore spent the money either in, in, in the ads or the listings to bring these people in. And then you end up spending a little bit of sales money, at least attempting to have a first meeting to try to sell to these people, right? And it's completely useless because these people just aren't a good fit for what you do. We also see messaging friction, you know, in the sales pitches themselves. We, we see people kind of talking past what the priorities are of the, of the prospects or at least talking in a different language than the prospects use. So even if they've got a perfect solution, they're not communicating it quite right. So the prospects don't see it. They don't convert, right? That's one bucket, uh, and it's pretty pervasive. And let me just jump in there for a second because yeah. your message, something we haven't talked a lot on on this show yet, is so prevalent. Like I, I'll just reminisce here, my Gartner days. You know, I talked five, six hundred companies on a given year, and messaging was very much top of mind, especially for the stage growth companies you're talking. Right, even once they've got product market fit, they don't there. And I, and I just want everybody to connect the dots on it's yes, it's the ICP. But it's more than that because heaven forbid you actually start, you win. And that sounds counterintuitive, right? You go, well, isn't that okay? No, because your cost of acquisition numbers went through the roof. Your churn, you have implications on churn downstream because you now have people that are the wrong fit. 
you now have to expand support organizations or you have sales motions that are incongruent. All of these things, it's not just what I say on my website. It's, it's the causality of an incorrect ICP relative to the growth. And I'm reminded of you know, when you think of how high growth companies tend to scale, they're, they really understand how they're going to do it. So what do I mean by that? They know what to say, they know who to say it to, and they're disciplined around it. So if I want to build a $100 million company, I can have 100 customers pay me $100,000 a year, and I'm there. So if that's my ICP, I better have a really good enterprise selling motion and organization that gets there and a message that's consistent across that. By contrast, I could still have a $100 million company and I could look there and go, well, I want a million clients to pay me 100 bucks a year. I'm, I'm still there. And then you have all the permeations of that in between. But what companies often I always saw was, they go, well, I know that really I'm trying to have 100 clients pay me a million bucks a year or 1,000 pay me 100,000. But, but you know what, Alistair, right now, my pipeline's a little weak with the market. I'm a little bit scared. I got pressure from my board. My economics aren't there. So you know, if I just put a bunch of Google AdWords out there and I light up my marketing, well, I, I can get like a, you know, 10, 20,000 customers maybe to pay me a thousand bucks. Well, the support motion and selling motion there is completely different from the other end. Yeah. And yet they want to blend together just to grab. So I say that to say when I think of sales and marketing and I think of messaging, it's more about what we shouldn't do than it is what we should do. And the narrowing of that is, is I think, is so key to people. And they just, in, in, in times of economic duress, it's very easy to be tempted to actually do it the other way. Go, well, let's go wider. Let's try to grab some more just to pad our numbers and make them show up in some way. But it absolutely kills you downstream once you get further ahead. Yeah, it it, it absolutely does. And I, I like your notion of God forbid you win them, yep. right? Uh, because then it costs you even more. So, so that's a big issue, right? Is just messaging that attracts non-ICP prospects. Yeah, that's right. Another area that we see a lot of opportunities for improvement is uh, what we call funnel imbalance. So yeah. if you think about most organizations today, the top of funnel, the demand creation or demand capture uh, part of the um, process is not sales driven. It's driven by marketing, maybe uh, SDR prospecting, maybe events or whatever. Right. And we tend to go into companies and invariably, most of these companies have too many salespeople relative to the top of funnel support they're getting. Right. You know, on the order of 30 to 40% or more uh, excess sales head capacity. Yep. And, and so what you have in that scenario is it's virtually impossible for people to make quota, right? Because there's too small of a pie being divvied up across uh, too many people. Yep. The very good salespeople get frustrated and leave. So you end up, you know, bottom grading simply because you had too many people to begin with. Right. Uh, every once in a while, we see companies that are prolific kind of lead and top of funnel generators, but don't actually have enough salespeople to process the things. Yeah. In either case, if you don't have that balanced, you're wasting money, you know, substantial money, either on top of funnel or bottom of funnel. And again, I venture to say, in my experience, probably 80% of growth stage companies have, you know, substantially too many salespeople. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, you always need some buffer because you don't want to end up with a situation where you don't have enough. Yes. Um, so you need some buffer to deal with attrition, but you know, it's a 10 or 15% type buffer that is what you need. So, so funnel imbalance is a big area that money is just wasted because you've got more of one part of the capacity than you need. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think when you think of the salesperson as well, we think of, you know, setting them up for success essentially, but that it's largely stacked against the success of the seller in most organization from what I've seen over the years. Right, companies are out there. They want to hire salespeople with the expectation that well, they're going to sell, and yet you then sit there and go, well, sixty-four percent of the t- of a seller's time is actually spent doing internal stuff. So I actually spend even externally. So just over right out of the box, you go, well, half of their time isn't even sp- spent doing the job that you hired them for. I don't know of any other function in the company where we would accept that. But in sales, it's it's prolific. Whether you're a large enterprise all the way down through to the the earliest stage. And so then you go, well, well, why? Why is so much of this spent not actually selling? And often it's, it's to your point, one of the key things is, have you actually set up them on the right ICPs, back to the message? Have you set them up with the right funnel support to get to where they need to get to? And demand generation needs to be focused around those core areas. So when they come in, they're actively doing the most constructive part of the selling process, which is the relationship nurturing and building at that point for a seasoned AE, right? They're going to be multi-pronged. They're going to need to be trained on a vertical. They're going to be need to be trained. How do I talk to a CFO versus say an IT leader, you know, and everything in between and setting them up with content and assets and tools to do that is, is really important. And, and yet again, you sit there and go, you know, people then would always say to me, well, that sounds great. So I guess I need more tools for my sellers, don't I? I got I to inform them with even more. And that in itself you know, is, is a real problem. And, and sorry for the numbers here, Scott, but I just want the audience to understand this, that an average no. today has more than eight tools they use at any given time to sell, to do their job. They go, well, how are they able to digest all of that information, recognize the patterns or understand what's going on? They don't. So they default back to what they know they don't action on the demand that's created properly because you're you're presenting them with too much information. And I'll give everybody an analogy here off this because the cognitive overload, kind of like what I'm doing right now, I'm, I'm giving tons of advice and, and ideas and data. It's overwhelming, <laughs> but it's, it's a good example of that, right? So cognitive overload happens to both buyers and sellers. And that is when you present too much choice, too much information, too much optionality rather than supporting the task at hand, they're not going to sell. And if we go, oh, is that really true? I go, well, like I know this is the middle of winter, but let's say we're somewhere sunny and warm, Scott. We're down in the Bahamas celebrating your latest exit. And uh, we're going to go for an ice cream. You know, and you think of an ice cream shop today, they're dizzying amounts of choices, right? Like a hundred different flavors when you wander in there. And while bubblegum, blueberry, lobster-based ice cream might be delicious, true flavor in Bar Harbor, Maine for our Northeast listeners. The reality is that 90% of all people buy what? Chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. Exactly. Right? So now you think of, okay, so if we know it always is simplified down to the basics, how can I service up the most tenable, actionable information to my rep against the most logical, sequential target that I want them to go after? Get rid of the rest of the noise. Just get rid of it right? Consolidate the platforms down and focus them on the metrics of the ICP that counts 
because that's what you're paying somebody potentially quarter of a million to half a million dollars a year for, right? You're not you're not market fit testing with sales reps. If you're doing that, you're too early for a sales force. Yeah. Yeah, we see that issue. I mean, you talk about them having eight tools or too many tools. Yeah. We see we we do a lot of work in Salesforce environment and we see that just with Salesforce, right? And and it's typically not set up in an optimized way for the sales team. Yeah. And so if you look at the page views that most salespeople have to look at, there are so many fields. It it, it really is cognitive overload. And, you know, our whole philosophy with our customers in terms of best practices is minimize the amount of data that you absolutely need to get from the sales team, mm-hmm. right? Uh, skinny, skinny down the page they have to interact with to the bare minimum, you know, build automations and other things to populate data fields that you need to have from a decision-making perspective, but you don't need the sales team necessarily to be the ones uh, doing that. So for example, perfect example is we've always put the burden historically, we, the industry uh, has historically put the burden on salespeople to capture who are we competing against. Yeah. And, you know, of course, in many cases, you don't even know, but, you know, so many people will make it a required field in the uh, CRM before some a salesperson can move it on to the next stage of opportunity. So they just start making stuff up, right? But, you know, one of the things we've done is we've leveraged these conversation intelligence tools that are out there today. And we said, look, you can grab this data simply by building good enough trackers into the call recordings and automatically get it. So you know it's unbiased. It becomes statistically valid. And it removes that burden from the sales team, right? And, and it's, it's just one of many areas where you can as you said, simplify the job for the sellers because that's going to increase their probability of success. And and if I build upon that, I think it's really good when I think of the CIA stack, right? And, and conversational intelligence, what it does. It works really well to do exactly what you said. You can you can pull out a, a insight, a task, a function, your, a competitor name is all of those things you can understand. And from there, you can then drive behavior action and other things. Where Where I will caution though is when people think of that purely as, I now I'm recording a conversation or getting some annotation off of it, which is great, but I'm going to rely upon that surfacing of the inside and assume my manager's going to action it. There, again, you fall back into the reality that most sales managers don't have the time to action it. So then you have to, to your point, is how do I tie that into the platform to automate the next best action out into the seller? Right, you you want to take that insight of, hey, here I actually know we're likely competing against these things. Therefore, I'm going to arm my seller without the assumption that a sales manager is actually going to lean into those technologies and understand it, and then coach the rep and do all of those things. That falls back in my 64% complaint, where it's a lot of time spent not selling. Instead, we want to lower that. You want to automate the insight coming off of the CAA tech into an engagement platform, drive that engagement because that engagement is actually where the action happens, is where people live. And now you're helping them actually be more effective in that conversation. But but I think you're spot yep. on a good place to start is you gotta you gotta know what's being said. And that's that's where you build this foundation on from there. Yeah, we've we've also found that CII data to also be very helpful to the first point of fixing messaging. Yes. Right. It it's 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 the best way for marketers 
to get a statistically valid look at the profile of the, the prospects and customers that they're dealing with. That's right. You know, provided that you automate the analysis of it. Obviously, they're not going to go listen to every call. It's just not feasible. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, you, you know, another area that we see a lot of friction is just in choosing the right channels or strategies that you source prospects by. I mean, we see, you know, a lot of companies, particularly if you have any kind of um, velocity motion, if you're selling to SMB or mid-market, you know, you're using multiple digital, you know, paid digital channels such as LinkedIn ads, search ads, um, you know, you're doing listings in G2, software advice, these kind of companies. You may be doing events, you might be doing outbound prospecting, et cetera. Most companies have a pretty good idea for what their cost of a lead is through these various channels, but very few have an understanding of what the cost to acquire a customer is or the cost to acquire a dollar of revenue is, you know, attributed to these channels. And to a large degree, it's because, again, they've often not put their tech stacks together right, so there's sort of a disconnect between the marketing automation platform and the CRM and the data gets stuck in silos. It might be contradictory. You know, if you're a chief revenue officer or, you know, any kind of senior revenue leader, you should think of yourself a little bit like a portfolio manager. We have these various channels, which are the same as assets to an investor. Yeah. Now, how do we know which ones are driving the biggest return? Because we want to put our money towards those and take it away from the ones that aren't as productive. And again, you know, the vast majority of these growth stage companies just are not armed with the necessary visibility to know that. And as a result, you know, they, they often tend to get, you know, enthused about what looks best at the top of funnel, basically what is driving the best cost per lead without actually understanding if those leads are any good all the way through. Uh, so it's another great area if people could get better at this to basically gain more efficiency is by getting a, a much better visibility into which of these channels that you're investing in are more productive or less productive. Yeah, 100%. And I think you know, when I when I think of multi-channel, y'all reference Gartner data for the audience here, right? That the when you think of outbound cold outreach, you're typically using between seven and 12 channels to generate demand these days. And that's very hard for companies as they're scaling up. So they want to default to a more simplistic view. And I think understanding where you're nurturing and building exposure versus where you're directly trying to sell and convert is also key when you're doing that. Because you know if you think that this would be some magical sequence on an email written in a certain way that is going to open all of the doors and make the, the mana rain down from heaven. It's, it's not going to happen, right? It's, it's very much in the mindset of multi-channel. How do you tier it? How do you scale it? And that's marketers. And that is also where you often see investments on SDRs and ISRs. And I think, again, your advice is really good in the sense of it has a causality to the CAC. It has a causality to the golden rules of revenue. Um, and what those costs are. And and people just want to blindly stack it in. I'm like, this is a dangerous path to go down because that will now get you into where we started this phone call, assuming that you can just burn capital and grow at all costs. Right. And right now, we are not seeing that that is at all true, right? It is understand where the leakage is, understand your CAC numbers, 
understand you know, what it is that's happening inside all of your, your expansion ratios, the payback period. It was the payback period, nine months, 14, 18. If you think you're going to get away with a 60-month payback period on revenue, those days are gone. Like if you're not getting it in under two years now, you know, you're, you're going to be upside down on your financials really quickly. And so it's in a way, Scott, I would say it's an exciting time. And I know that seems hard for people to accept when there's a lot of pressure. But what's good is as an industry, particularly in tech, we're at a maturation moment where companies now are actually having to act like proper companies and know that while capital is still out there, running a healthy business that knows how to generate revenue, knows the costs associated with generate revenue, can do a multi-channel and can get the demand is it. And, and, and let's go back to where we started. Knows the message, the fit, and as much knows not just who to sell to, as everybody answers that question, in all my investments through my career, I've always asked, who, who aren't you supposed to sell to? What's the lead you're, you're not going to convert when it comes in and why? And if you don't know that answer right off the top of your head, my experience, more often than not, that's somebody that is just telling me what they think I want to hear as opposed to actually really understands who to sell to. The, the real costs of selling to the wrong people come in after the fact. Um, uh, you know, and then you end up, you know, trying to make it work and it, it just never does. But uh, no, I think the mindset towards efficient growth is a great, uh, you know, will help these companies develop a muscle that's very important and will serve them over the long term. With that said, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty out there right now, right? I mean, we see buyers, uh, a lot of companies have taken a cost-neutral position where they're not going to buy any new software unless it replaces something they currently have. We see people that just have a nothing new. I think the market is is largely in this, we got to figure out where the bottom is, what, you know, what, what the worst point is. And I don't know that anyone knows that. So, you know, it raises the bar even that much more to be very, very efficient in the meantime. And you got to be able to outlast this thing. And um, despite the fact that there's still a lot of dry powder out there in the investment world, you know, they're not chomping at the bit to put it to work right now. That's right. Um, yeah. so, so, you, so you need to be very, very careful. Well, Scott, I, I, I think you're setting us up for a, I'd love to have you back and dive a little bit deeper on that because, you know, when times get tough, what do execs turn to? Metrics and numbers and their trusted old spreadsheets. But there's a lot of numbness around that. I'm not sure everybody knows what to do. So, you know, I'd love to have you back talk about some KPI numbness and the, you know, the actionable versus non-actionable data that helps me know when I'm at the bottom versus when I need to scale and recover. Let's do it. Scott, it's been brilliant. Love your background and experience on this. For those of you listening in, please remember to like and subscribe to the RevOps podcast and do check out our call-in number and send in your questions to our Naya. We will be sure to answer them and feature them in an upcoming podcast episode as well. You can reach us at 323-540-4777. That's 323-540-4777. And we will see you next week and hopefully have Scott back to discuss this topic even further on how to recover as we scale forwards. Thanks, Scott. My pleasure, Alistair. Thanks for having me.